0: The legal system is in a bind—it's financial and ethical. While 85% of adult criminal cases in Kansas require appointed counsel, there's a real lack of state funding. There's massive caseloads. There's high defense attorney turnover, and it all calls into question whether the state is meeting its constitutional requirement to provide for the defense of the poor. Heather Cessna, executive director of the Kansas State Board of Indigenous Defense, is with us on the Kansas Reflector podcast to explain why we all should care about the predicament. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Tim.
0: Thanks for taking time. So to begin with, just please give us give us the nut. What is at risk if nothing changes about the state's approach to representing in court indigent defendants?
1: Uh, well, I mean, not to sound um, too overly pessimistic, but it comes down to the ultimate end of the criminal justice system. Um, our appointed counsel and our public defenders are an integral part of that criminal justice system in Kansas. Criminal cases cannot progress without uh, defense attorneys. Besides, beside those uh, accused of crimes, and without sufficient funding and sufficient attorneys to meet those caseload needs, uh, that system will fail.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so as we're gonna we're gonna break this all down here in a second, kind of look at it in the fundamental parts. But before we start, just give us a brief explanation, the background on your role as it relates to the overall justice system and how it how it lines up with the prosecution.
1: Sure. So, um, in our criminal justice system in Kansas, we have sort of two sides to our our defense side. Um, we have appointed counsel and we have public defenders. Those are both covered under the same umbrella of the Board of Indigent Defense Services. So we have. Uh, nine board members, um, eight of which are filled right now on our board. And I'm the executive director of that agency. So I'm the one who runs that from day to day. So we do everything in our agency from pay panel attorneys who are private attorneys who take cases on appointment to administering all of the public defenders offices throughout the state to trying to help find counsel for those hard to find cases uh, where there's lots of conflicts. Um, I'm pretty much the gambit. So Um, we, and we cover every County in Kansas
0: Mm -hmm. and, um, all right. All right. So we'll, we'll go from there. That, that'll be a good jumping off point. That'll help people with a little context. First, do you have enough attorneys on staff? And if not, what's the attorney caseload? Uh, and how does that compare to the national standards?
1: Uh, we do not have enough attorneys on staff. So our public defenders are actually our direct employees of the board. They're state employees, um, and but they have a, a – Uh, Independence from the state system so that they can adequately represent their clients. Um, Our current, out of fiscal year 2021, we were averaging about 13 hours per attorney per case, um, which is massively below what uh, appropriate standards are for effective assistance of counsel. Um, And uh, part of the problem here is that we have some uh, relatively ancient national standards that don't differentiate between levels of crimes. Um, And so traditionally, they used to say that as long as you were below 150 cases per year per attorney, that you were meeting national standards. But those standards were set in 1973 and they don't differentiate between having 150 murder cases versus 150 probation violations. Um, The new standards or the new sort of uh, golden rule for looking at caseloads really uh, depends on a combination of the amount of hours that you would expect to spend on a particular case and the number of attorneys that you have to meet those caseloads, depending on the severity level of the case.
0: Yeah, I don't think uh, anybody would think a 1973 vehicle... Uh, would be the standard of public safety today.
1: Not at all. (laughs) I
0: imagine some of those cars came off the production line without seatbelts. So, all right. What about compensation for your defense attorneys? Those that you draw from the private sector and those on your staff, Is it competitive with what uh, is available, uh, paid for by taxpayers, for the prosecutors?
1: Um, It is not. Um, So on our public defender employees, so those are the direct employees that work in our, our public defender's offices, um, they are paid considerably below their prosecutor counterparts um, in the same counties and the same courtrooms that they work in every day while our salaries across the board may start out um, for those people like fresh out of law school at a relatively comparable level depending on what county you're in um, once you get a couple years of experience into your belts the county attorneys and the district attorney salaries are you know sometimes ten 000, fifteen thousand um, dollars above where our public defender salaries are. Um, so we've recently presented uh, in a, a lot of information to the legislature on the salary differentials in order to support an across the board pay increase for our public defenders.
0: Did your staff get poached by, by frequently uh, law firms or prosecutor offices or even the federal public defender system that which might pay better?
1: Yes. <laughs> Um, to all of those. Um, And honestly, most recently, we've seen a huge increase in the number of people who are specifically leaving our public defender's offices to go work for prosecutor's offices because of those pay differentials. I mean, the interesting thing here is is that if you want to do criminal law in Kansas, uh, we represent 85% of the people who uh, are qualified for appointed counsel in Kansas. So 85% of all adult felony cases Require appointed counsel, and we provide that counsel either through our public defender system or through our appointed private attorneys um, across the board. And so, if you want to do criminal law, really, you're going to end up having to be a prosecutor or a public defender or take appointed cases. And so, if that's your your area of interest, there's you know there's a couple places to go. And if one side is consistently paying you know significantly higher than the other. I mean, it's not a big surprise when we lose people to prosecutors' offices in particular.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the assigned counsel. So that would be a yeah. big chunk of your uh, defense cases. They're they're being handled by attorneys in towns all over the state that uh, are assigned cases uh, through your office, but through the court. So I think the salaries, two thousand and six. Let's go back a ways. Uh, assigned counsel got about eighty bucks an hour. What is the rate today?
1: Um, the rate that we are paying, right today, um, right now, is $100 an hour, which we're only doing through a special budget proviso that was provided by the legislature last year. Um, But that sunsets at the end of this year unless the Senate passes House Bill 2363. Uh, That bill has already gone through the House and was passed favorably out of the Ways and Means um, Committee in the Senate, but it hasn't come up for a full vote in the Senate. That would permanently increase our rate to at least $100 an hour and give us the option in about a year to raise it to $100 120 if we have the sufficient funding to support that
0: okay so in 06 a long time ago yeah. it was about 80 bucks an hour now on a temporary basis it's a hundred dollars an hour i'm sure in yeah. fl- the costs of running a law office have increased more than 20 dollars an hour since then so what's the market rate for lawyers go back to if you have a number for 2006 and what would be a comparable market rate now
1: yeah, so in 20, uh, 20 you know, two thousand six, I think the um, going market rate was around one hundred and fifty for private attorneys, um, according to a KBA study from twenty seventeen, which was some of the most recent numbers we could find locally. Um, the going rate for uh, for private attorney services in Kansas was around 225 to 250 an hour. I think, anecdotally, that's pretty low. I think if you were actually going to go out and hire a private defense counsel to represent you on a murder case, they're going to charge closer to three or four hundred dollars an hour. Um, but
0: your defense counsel, uh, who in assigned cases is still going to make a hundred bucks, they're going to make a fraction uh, of of what a just a, an attorney in private practice who has a has a serious client might be paid three times that amount by that client. Yes. But if you're going to go through the state system of getting an attorney, 100 bucks.
1: Yes, and the thing that you have to realize, too, is, is that that $100 isn't like profit that the attorney is making. That is paying for overhead. That's paying for support staff. That's literally keeping the lights on and paying for malpractice insurance. Mm. So that that even goes less far than you think it does. And it doesn't sound like it goes that far at all. So, um, I mean, that's something to keep in mind as we're talking about this. I mean, uh, nobody is getting rich off of making, uh, you know, off of representing these clients. A lot of the attorneys that we have on our panels Um, who take this appointed work do so because they believe in the mission. They understand the importance of the Sixth Amendment requirement that, you know, that uh, attorneys be provided for people accused of crimes. They're doing this um, partially as an attempt to provide some pro bono services, but we also have to be able to compensate them so that they can keep their lights on and keep taking cases. It's
0: sort of a public service for sure. So what about your staff? So so you have a central office in Topeka. Yes. And then you have what could be considered satellite offices in various communities around the state. How many of those offices exist?
1: Um, so we have 11 trial offices. Um, we have 17 offices total. So in Topeka, we actually have um, uh, an appellate office. We have multiple capital offices, both at the trial, the appeals, and the habeas level. Um, Trial-level public defender offices that are more regional out in places like um, Johnson County and Garden City and Wichita. Um salina junction city there, there's 11 of those
0: mm-hmm. there's 31 con- uh, district uh, judicial districts in the state so you right. don't have one office to represent <laughs> each of those 31 no in the way judges are distributed you have 11 that have got to handle that geographic spread
1: Right. Well, and for the areas that we don't cover with our public defender's offices, we do have our panels. So, I mean, obviously there are some panels, um, the panel attorneys, so a local private attorneys that sign up to accept appointments on cases. Okay. So we do have panels in all 31 jur- you know, jurisdictions. Um, it's just that there are some jurisdictions that only have panels, and then there's jurisdictions that have both public defender's office and panel attorneys. All right, getting
0: back to your staff, what's the annual turnover, do you figure? What's the recent history? What is it these days?
1: Our um, annual turnover uh, in fiscal year 2021 was 12 percent, which that in and of itself um, is significant given the number of attorneys that we have leaving. Um, But the real problem is, is that historically we've had such high turnover over the course of the last five years or so that the number of people that we have left in our public defender's offices who have a significant amount of experience in order to handle the high level cases has just decreased significantly. Mm -hmm. And part of that turnover, I mean, a small portion of that turnover has been as, you know, some of our attorneys have retired or or that sort of thing. But a lot of it has been, you know, attrition as a result of high caseloads and low pay.
0: So you did a survey, I think,
1: Yeah. um, In 2020, we started doing a a agency wide survey to help us sort of pinpoint. I mean, we knew um, intellectually where we thought the problems were, but we wanted to hear directly from our employees as to what they identified as the issues. And so we got a lot of great information out of that survey.
0: What percentage of them said they weren't sure that they would remain in their current job in 10 years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was close to 81%. And part of that was uh, the really just, you know, concerning part about that was that they there was a large number of those uh, support staff and and attorneys who said they were working in our agency because they believe in the mission they believe in the work and ultimately they were identifying either um, more so in 2020 the caseloads and then this past year more so the the low pay as the reasons why they were considering leaving Mm
0: -hmm. so compensation workload those go hand in hand i would think Um, if you're going to work an extreme caseload maybe higher much higher compensation could balance that out but when you have the problem on both ends of that your retention is going to suffer
1: yeah and i mean at the end of the day i mean at the end of the day no matter how high we pay our attorneys i mean they're going to have ethical caseload limits that we're going to have to keep an eye on and and actively pursue because in order to provide appropriate assistance of counsel they need to have the time to work the cases but part of that also involves having an appropriate amount of staffing one of the other sort of hidden problems that we have in our our public defenders offices right now is that we have had such a lack of sufficient full-time employee positions to distribute in our public defender's offices that when we have had the opportunity to add those positions, we've tended to do so with the attorneys because those are the people that are actually on the ground in the courtroom. But what we also need is a significant number of support staff in order to work those cases, investigators, paralegals, administrative support staff, um, sometimes social workers, and things like that that are absolutely essential to be able to provide uh, appropriate service to our clients. Mm
0: -hmm. Has it ever reached the the point in which any of these public defender offices have to decline additional cases?
1: Um, Constantly. Um, We have a, a large number of our public defenders offices right now are temporarily refusing cases. So they're still working the cases that they have. Um, but they can't continue to take new cases right now, either because of a combination of caseloads or a turnover, um, either one or the other or both. Um, and so uh, during that time, then those those cases have to go somewhere. And this is this is kind of part of the problem that we've talked extensively with the legislature about when we're talking about our funding. Is that when we don't have enough staff in our public defenders offices, and we have to refuse cases in order to maintain ethical caseloads, which we have the right to do in Kansas, unlike other places like Missouri, where they don't have the right to refuse cases, um, because our our uh, regulatory provisions provide us that authority. Um, those cases still have to go somewhere. And so they end up going to our assigned counsel panels. So those are the private attorneys in any jurisdiction that have signed up on the appointments list. But those attorneys also have to maintain appropriate caseloads in order to ethically represent those clients. And so what happens is those panel attorneys get overloaded and then we're, we're rushing around trying to find additional counsel to fill those, those, uh, you know, to fill those case needs. And so at this point, Because of our turnover issues and our caseload problems and lack of staffing in many of our public defender's offices and because of the then subsequent overload of our panel attorneys in many of those same jurisdictions, we're currently having to pay windshield time for attorneys to go from places like Kansas City out to Junction City in order to handle sufficient numbers of cases. We're asking people to from surrounding communities to help cover areas in Wichita, which is one of our largest jurisdictions with the most number of criminal cases, because we don't have enough panel attorneys in Wichita right now. Um, and that's partially because we've had issues keeping our public defender's offices. And Wichita is actually a very interesting example because in Wichita, we have a our largest public defender's office in the state. Um, we also have a conflicts public defender's office. We have a contractor who is on contract to take conflicts cases, and we have a panel of attorneys down there. And we've gone through our both of our public defender's offices, our contractor and our panel to the point where we have very few people left taking cases in Wichita right now. And that's a real problem because at some point somewhere, somebody's going to end up in a courtroom without an attorney next to them. And at that point, either cases start getting dismissed or the state gets sued. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So quick side note here. I'm, I'm wondering if the majority of judges in Kansas are former prosecutors, or maybe they're from just private lawyers, but is there a, a, a deficit in terms of judges who have experience as defense counsel?
1: Um, there is. There's a, a relatively small number of, of judges throughout the state system and from trial level through the appellate level who have any significant experience taking cases um, from the defense criminal defense side. Um, the criminal um, The criminal side of cases takes up a huge amount of our of our judicial system. And the vast majority of judges who come from that background tend to be prosecutors. Um, And I think there is a bias, both both, you know, in the public as well as as amongst the people making some of the decisions about who ends up in those seats, um, about uh, defense attorneys in general, and particularly public defenders um, taking those cases. It's really hard for people to differentiate sometimes between the attorney and the client that they're representing.
0: For example, you've represented people in cases. Yes. As as defense counsel. No doubt you've represented people that are very unseemly individuals accused of heinous crimes, but, but why do you do that?
1: Because they have a right to defense counsel just like anyone else does, whether they're guilty or they're innocent, whether they've committed the crime that they've been accused of or whether they've uh, committed a lesser crime or whether they're innocent. They're entitled to have a defense attorney under our Constitution, and I believe in the Constitution.
0: You know, justice mandates that they get a, a rigorous defense, mm-hmm. and it's it, you shouldn't carry the burden of doing your job as you move forward say if you are nominated for an you know the Kansas Court of Appeals or something you shouldn't have to bear the burden of representing somebody that in your heart you perhaps knew was guilty but uh but but needed to provide that counsel to
1: yeah and i mean i think what that what that does is it discourages our young public defenders from staying in our system i mean it, you know there's sort of this tacit understanding that if you have any desire to be a judge um, as part of your, you know, future career moves, that you pretty much have to leave the public defender system and either go be a district attorney somewhere, county attorney somewhere, or you've got to go into private practice and represent something other than appointed cases. And that's unfortunate because we leave a lot, we lose a lot of good, talented people who may have future aspirations, but they, you know, but they're concerned about that sort of public defender tax that gets associated with them and their professional lives. You would
0: expect the judicial branch to represent the breadth of legal skills that are out there. Okay, let's go back, get back to the point at hand. So why would a taxpayer, a law abider, be concerned about how well your uh, indigent's defense uh, program is funded?
1: I mean, I think the first answer to that question is that if you believe in the importance of the Constitution, then you should care about this issue. Um, The second part of that is that, you know, certainly while all of us hope that we're never going to be uh, charged and accused of a crime, the truth is, is that that could happen. I mean, and it may be something that you, you know, did that you don't think rises to the level of a crime that may actually be a crime, or it may be that you're wrongfully accused. Um, Mm -hmm. But the other part of that, too, is that as a taxpayer, you're paying for the consequences of us not having a subsu- you know, a sufficiently funded system. Um, the state in the last four or five years has paid out I think only four wrongful conviction claims at over four million dollars um, and that comes out of taxpayer funds and that's four cases. We represent close to 25,000 cases a year. In our system, I mean, there's there's going to be more wrongful convictions out there somewhere, and mm-hmm. the the underfunding and the lack of sufficient staffing has a potential to have a huge impact on on either causing that or if we're sufficiently funding our system, avoiding those problems.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and one of, and I've and I've considered this wrongful conviction thing in the past. There've been many stories out there: Floyd Bledsoe, Lamont McIntyre, and others, but the part that I hadn't considered before is the ethical impact on your defense counselors. So defense lawyers could be totally overwhelmed uh, due to circumstances, have so many complex cases, that they do something that's not necessarily in the best interest of one of their uh, clients. And um, they, there's an ethical complaint filed. And and so these your attorneys could because of the work system and the lack of funding and the lack of lawyers could face ethical sanctions. Talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah, uh, one of the, uh, that's definitely one of our utmost concerns and one of the reasons why we've tried to take a very um, careful look over the last few years, especially at our caseloads and our public defenders offices. Um, one of the first conversations I had when I came into this position two years ago was with one of our line defenders in one of our regional offices, and she wanted to talk about caseloads. And she sat down across from me, and I expected that we were going to talk about the number of cases that um she had on her plate and she started off the conversation and said look i'm concerned i'm gonna lose my law license <laughs> and and you know what do you say to somebody when you know when they're carrying?" too high of a caseload under those circumstances. I mean, the, the problem is, is that we're all human. I mean, we're all capable of making mistakes. And if you're capable, you know, but you're at least if you're carrying a reasonable caseload, you're a lot less likely to make those kinds of mistakes that can get you into professional or ethical trouble. Um, when you've got too much on your plate and you've got nowhere for those cases to go and you've got deadlines to meet and you've got only so many hours in a day, it, it becomes a lot more likely that you're going to have those problems and and I think that even if you know people haven't thought of it from that specific standpoint I mean that's that's definitely a deterrent when you have people looking at whether or not they want to you know work in our system it's not just the low pay it's not just the amount of work it's also those you know unspoken professional responsibilities that Can have a huge impact on your ability to continue practicing law and you know i mean you spend a lot of money going to law school a lot of money you know uh trying to get your law degree a lot of time and effort into doing that and you don't want to see something like that lost because the system has created a situation that has put you in this position
0: okay before the clock runs out on us wave your magic wand and fix the problem what would you do?
1: <laughs> well, if I had a magic wand, I'd come up with a whole lot of, of very experienced okay, defense so attorneys to take a limited, cases. But... <laughs> a wand of limited
0: magical ability. How do yeah. how do you make progress?
1: Um, I mean, I think the big uh, the big answer to that is money. Um, the state is not sufficiently funding our public defense system at that at this point. And the good news is is that I think that that over the course of the last two years, as we've had these conversations with the legislature, we get we get the vast majority of our funding from the state general. Fund. So the legislature is where our funding comes from. Um, I think the the legislature is starting to understand the complexities of the problem and the amount of, of additional funding that we're in need of. And so uh, the additional funding as we go forward, both for new FTE positions for our public defender's offices so that we have more employees in our public defender's offices to handle those caseloads, better funding for our um, panel attorneys to accept cases so that they're not losing their shirts and they're able to continue taking cases, Um, and then investments in things like our training programs and and things like that so that we can have a good pipeline of people that we are bringing into the system and training them up so that as we're looking five, ten years down the line We've got, you know, we've got those those experienced defenders that we're able to keep within the system and to continue taking cases for longer periods of time um, with appropriate raises and, and appropriate salary funding is going to make a huge difference. But those are all individually, one of those solutions is not going to fix the problem that we have. I mean, it really has to be a big picture total. Uh, package solution. And that's that's something, like I said, that I think the legislature is, is um, coming around to and kind of understanding the complexities of. So I'm, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic, I would say, <laughs> mm-hmm. for where we're going with some of these issues.
0: So you're looking for a comprehensive solution. It could take years. It could take years to implement the the changes that you would hope for in the system.
1: It it will take years. Um, But, uh, you know, certainly this is definitely a process that we probably should have started 10 years ago. Um, We've really started it comprehensively over the last two years. um, So we're definitely sort of behind the ball on trying to fix the problem but i think it's going to take a continued investment from the legislature from this governor future governors it's going to take a consistent support from our judicial system as we're moving forward and trying to work through these issues um and so far um, it's been you know we've gotten a lot of support um from the governor's office from the legislature um even from prosecutors offices um attorney general derek schmidt filed some testimony in support of our budget just last week um so uh, i mean i think there that there are definitely you know the people in um positions of power that understand the importance of this issue and and what we're trying to do here it's just a matter of keeping that ball moving forward okay excellent i
0: we could go on but i think we're gonna have to leave it there i want to thank our guest heather Cessna, executive director of the kansas state board of indigents defense thank you very much
1: thank you very much tim